preach when your voice is working properly. So hopefully, uh, anyways, thank you for that teaching this morning, Sister Sue. I'm going to invite you all to turn with me this morning to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6 this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. If you're there, say amen. Amen. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. I'm going to preach a message this morning titled, as I tried to preach a uh, couple of weeks ago, titled, God has made a way, which he has, by his own hand. He has made a way for whosoever will come to him. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your unending mercy, your amazing grace. God, I ask that you leave the comforter here with us for just a little while longer for the remainder of this service, however long that might be, to Anoint each of us to receive what you'd have us receive. And God, I ask that you anoint my lips that I may properly minister what you'd have me say from this passage of Scripture in this great book. And God, once again, we just give you all the praise and glory and honor for all that you've done, for all that you do for us, and God, for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians is a book that is a word of encouragement to its recipients. The purpose of this book is to minister to its reader what we have in Christ. Paul is writing Ephesians from a Roman prison cell, and while that might not look like prison cells in modern America, the one that he was in during this time, it shows us how Paul can... Paul is very capable to minister about the goodness of God regardless of his circumstances. Therefore, we can receive the goodness of God and be joyful in this life and living for God regardless of our circumstance. Ephesians is a rich book. It is Christianity in six chapters. The only <coughs> other book that is so rich in its message many say is the king of the epistles the book of romans and ephesians is a wonderful book and it's it's an important book in the new testament all of the books of the bible are important we know this but ephesians is very special in how simple and in how direct it is at this point paul has simply introduced himself this is the very beginning of ephesians he opens up by talking about the least controversial word in Christianity, predestination, and he's telling us about God's role in this walk with God. Paul is an apostle. 
while there are more definitions, it feels like, to that word than there are people in the world at this point, apostle, what we know for sure is that Paul was an apostle and that he was used of God prophetically. He was used of God to pastor, to teach, to evangelize, certainly to evangelize. He was very well acquainted with the gifts of the Spirit, and he was, in a way, a leader of the early church, although we don't, although he never really considered himself to be a leader of the early church, it's not hard to come to that conclusion because much of the Gentile world owes it to how God used the Apostle Paul as it regards us having a knowledge of the gospel today. So whether this man was seen during his time as a leader of his generation of Christians or not, the Lord used this man in such an important way, mainly for people like you and I, so that we could have access to God's gospel. Now, Paul is going to talk, and he's on, one of the bigger one of the bigger themes in Ephesians is how the Gentiles are included in this personal covenant relationship. And Paul himself will talk about that later on in this first chapter. But today what I want to focus on is simply the main point of this passage that we've read. The point here is to encourage the Ephesians, who he's writing to, to praise God for redemption. Starting off at the very basics of the basics, Paul is saying to those who are going to read this letter, this book that he's written, the Ephesians, to praise God for the redemption that they have in Christ. For the redemption that they have in Christ. 2,000 years ago, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe may not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. Not just the Jews and not just the Gentiles, but whosoever. This is a very special covenant that you and I live in. The word covenant, as is said often in the Bible, is just a bigger, fancier word for relationship. It has a lot to do with relationship. As it regards the covenant between God and man, that is speaking majorly of the relationship between God and man. 2,000 years ago, God the Father sent his only begotten Son, who himself offered himself up at the cross of Calvary to pay the debt on behalf of you and I as it regards the sins that we have committed. Our sins have earned our place in hell, but Christ has given us access to eternity with God. So whereas you and I automatically with our sins set ourselves up to endure eternity without God, Jesus Christ has paved the way with his blood so that we can have access to eternity with God. Paul said to the Galatians that this is an inheritance that Christ has gotten for us. And we have access to that inheritance. We have access to life with God. And eternity begins whenever you get saved. It does not end, it does not begin upon death. Eternity begins when you come to know Jesus Christ. There is only one way that this walk with God is maintained, and that is by constant faith in who Jesus is, constant dependence on what he has done for you two thousand years ago at the cross of Calvary. 
Paul talks about blessings in this chapter of Ephesians. He says that we have been blessed with spiritual blessings. Now, as, that, as it regards how God is taught, for lack of a better phrase, in this passage of Scripture, you have to approach this with a Trinitarian mindset. If you don't affirm the Trinity, that we do serve one God, but this God has made himself apparent in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, if this part of Ephesians chapter 1 will come across as a little confusing to you because you have to approach it with this, with this preconceived knowledge that this idea of the Trinity, we know uh, you have to approach this with a Trinitarian mindset. So let's talk about the Trinity just for a second. There is God the Father. Now, Paul presents God the Father in this text as the one from whom blessings come. So God the Father in this text is the blesser of his people. That blessings come from God the Father. There is God the Son who is our Redeemer. There is literally no redemption without Jesus Christ. God the Father gave us our biggest blessing, which is the blessing of redemption, and that redemption only comes through Jesus Christ. And then there is God the Holy Spirit, who is your best friend in this Christian life. He comes down to live in your heart when you get saved to make Christianity not just some legalistic religious stuff, but an actual lifestyle that you truly understand as you draw closer, not just to this idea of who God may or may not be, but when you have a true understanding of who God is, when you know God personally, the Holy Spirit helps out a lot with that relationship. Paul says that we are blessed in heavenly places. We are blessed in heavenly places. This has to do with the source of our blessings. Your blessings do not come from Capitol Hill. They don't come from your favorite preacher. Your blessings come from God himself, which is a far more reliable source than anyone else that I just mentioned just now. I'm still waiting for some Christians who haven't gotten over the election from a few years ago to come back to the real world already and replace their faith in God as their source. We are blessed in heavenly places. Your blessings come from the throne room directly. That place that Isaiah saw many years ago, that's where your blessings come from. The throne room of God himself. And God the Father is your blesser. Make no mistake about that. Let me tell you something. This church has been here for decades. How long has this church been here? More years than we would care to count. About 22 to 24 years. And we have seen our numbers fluctuate to so many people, to so few people throughout those years, and to think throughout all of that, we're still here. Because God is very capable of keeping us, far more capable than anyone else. And God is going to continue keeping this church right here as long as he sees fit. Our blessings come from the throne room, where there is no limit 
all right, as it regards to what God can do. There's no limit for what God can do for you, especially if it's in accordance with his divine will. We read that God will give you the desires of your heart. Friend, let me just say this. If your desires are God's desires, which is what the Holy Spirit wants to give to you, the Holy Spirit wants to make your desires God's desires. And God cannot deny himself. When God's people ask for godly things, God has no problem with providing what we need when we need it. We are blessed in heavenly places. Our blessings come from God personally. We are blessed in Christ. And it's important to mention that because not everybody can read Ephesians 1 and apply it to themselves. This, as really is the case with most of the Bible, honestly, is only applicable to God's people. You can only take part in these blessings, and Paul's going to go through a list of them throughout this chapter here. You can only take part in these blessings if you are a child of God. And the only way to be in that position is to, buy, is to be walking by faith in Christ and who he is. That's the only kind of person that God is going to honor. Race, gender, wealth, health has nothing to do with it but your faith. That's what God is looking at. Where, where is your faith? Who is your faith in? Is your faith in the Son of God, or is it in something else? God only responds to those who have their faith in Jesus Christ. We are blessed in Christ. And then Paul further goes on to specify. He says that we are a chosen people. And that word chosen is not alien to the scriptures. Jesus would say in John 15, 16, he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Another famous verse about being chosen verses is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the, pra the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Paul says that we are chosen. Chosen since before the foundation of the world so that we could be holy and blameless before God in love. Before the foundations of the world. Now, if I was joking with, uh, or I told Brother Jason this morning about a joke that I've told a few people uh, that I know. How Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 are to Calvinists what Acts 2 and Joel 2 are to Pentecostals. I mean, sometimes it might as well just be the Bible because that's all certain groups want to talk about. Many people will look at Ephesians 1 and try to dodge a couple of things because when you think about church culture today, really these phrases chosen 
predestined. I don't want to use the word hijacked, but for lack of a better word, have been hijacked by the Calvinist movement. And I don't say that out of disrespect to our Calvinist brothers and sisters. I, I, some of the best people that God has used to disciple me, particularly during that first year after I became a Christian, were Calvinists. However, one thing that has to be understood about predestination is that, first of all, you can't deny that God predestines stuff because the Bible clearly says that he does. Secondly, we need to look at what God is predestining. Now, when most people look at Ephesians chapter 1 where it says how God has chosen us, how he has predestined us, they either use that to talk about two things, to either talk about how God predestines people to heaven or hell, or to talk about how God predestines the path of those who he foreknew would, out of their free will, accept him, how he paves the path for those who choose him out of their free will. It's certainly more applicable to that second uh, interpretation, but at the same time, this does talk about God predestining people. What Calvinists get wrong is that they look at this and they say that God has predestined people to heaven or hell, but this chapter does not talk about individual people. This chapter talks about predestining the covenant that will include the Gentiles into this covenant with God, people like you and me. If God has not predestined the cross of Calvary, People like you and I really have no hope as it regards to entering into a personal relationship with God. In the Old Covenant, anybody could follow after God. I'm reminded of the case with Nineveh, a Gentile city, big move of God, whole city repented and turned to the Lord and avoided judgment for an entire century because these Gentiles in the Old Testament times did enter into some kind of connection with God. Here's the thing about the Old Covenant, though. There was something very special, obviously, about what the Jewish people had with God, especially when comparing their relationship with God with that of everyone else's. It was the Jews that God used to... Uh, God would use these people to send in the Savior of the world through... These were the people that God led personally out of Egypt. These are the people that the Holy Spirit personally follows throughout the Old Testament specifically. It was with the Jews personally, the Hebrew people, that God made a personal covenant with at Mount Sinai. God gave the Ten Commandments to a Hebrew man. You can't deny that there was something special about what the Jews had in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, God opens the door for everybody. Whereas in the Old Covenant, anybody could follow after God, but only one group of people were, if we're being honest, in a genuinely personal relationship. Here in this New Covenant, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, whosoever will come to God can enter into that personal relationship with Him, that personal covenant. 
For reasons like this, Paul can say that there is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's not the whole verse, but you get what I'm saying. In the Old Covenant, God talks to the prophets about how he will bring people in from all over the world. But in the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle, there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor bond nor free, nor rich nor poor, nor male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. In Christ. What did you say about the foot of the cross this morning? Level. Nobody's greater than anybody else. And further, nobody is closer to God than anyone else. Because the ground at the cross is level. We all stand on the same plane at the foot of the cross. Each and every single one of us are just as cherished by God as the other. Because the ground is level for everybody at the foot of Calvary's cross. Amen. And before the foundation of the world... God had all of this figured out. Amen. How God revealed his redemption plan through Christ, especially in the Old Testament, was a progressive revelation, as they say. There were always people prophesying. Uh, Daniel apparently is the only person who actually used the word Messiah, which is incredible because of how often we use that word to describe Jesus. But it was a progressive revelation in the Old Testament. This revelation that one day God will establish a new covenant. That one day God will stamp his law on the hearts of people. This revelation that one day people will be saved from their sins. Not have their sins covered, but have their sins totally taken away. God had it all figured out before the foundations of the world. And he still has it all figured out. Off topic, but sometimes... The best word of encouragement you could give to somebody is to just tell them that God still knows exactly what he's doing and that nothing catches God off guard. This is something that you can take all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. God knew about the cross. God knew about that slain lamb since before the foundations of the world, before all of it. The cross of Christ was a predestined event. God predestined Calvary to take place. So, God has had it all figured out. Paul says that we are to be presented holy and blameless before God in love. In the original Hebrew language, the Hebrew word for holy is a word that is, if I'm pronouncing it right, kadash. That's the word for holy in the original Hebrew. And one Bible scholar that I've read, I can't pronounce his name, and I hate that I can't because I think he has the best definition of that word, holy. Uh, contextualized with the Bible, I think he does have the best definition. First of all, at its most basic level, that word holy has to do with separation. At its most basic level, with nothing else added, to be holy is to be separate. So as it regards how God is holy, or how God makes a man and a woman holy, first of all, when it comes to God, that word holy means, just simply tells us that God himself is naturally separated or detached, as this one scholar said, detached from the fallen attributes of mankind. 
mankind is fallen in our sin. It is scripture. It is Bible. And we don't have the strength or the wisdom in and of ourselves to enter into a relationship with God. But God does not have to worry about any sin problem because he is holy. He does not battle with the temptation to sin. He does not battle with the sin nature. He's God. He is holy. You and I are to be made holy. And as Isaiah 6 even shows us, Brother Jason did a message months ago from Isaiah 6. We even see in that chapter in the Old Testament how it's the Lord who has to make a man holy. Only God can make a man holy. And if you want to be holy, you must be born again. Amen. If you want to be holy, you're going to have to be in relationship with the God who can make you holy. You must be born again if you want to be detached from the sin nature. You must be born again without blame before God. That's what God can make somebody without spiritual blame. Without spiritual blame. That has, that has to do with the idea of being positionally, positionally sinless before God. We don't teach or preach here the, the doctrine of entire sanctification, or as we're more acquainted with it, the idea of sinless perfection. We believe that there will be a, a day in the future where whenever we enter into heaven or whether we're raptured, however that takes place, we believe that we will be sinlessly perfect in heaven because the former things will have all passed away at that point. Mortality will put on immortality. Imperfection will put on perfection. I'm paraphrasing, but you know what I mean. We believe that the day is coming for all of God's people where we will be like Him. We will be holy just as our Father in heaven is holy. Thanks to Christ and His shed blood, all that has afforded to us as God's people. We don't teach that it's possible to become sinlessly perfect here on earth. And if we're wrong about that, we'll just have to learn that we were wrong when we get to heaven. Because as long as there is some kind of presence of sin around us, we can't believe that you can reach a point here on earth where you just stop sinning and then live sinlessly perfect for a while. You know, we're open to discussion about it, though. I'll just leave that at that. All right. But only God can make a man holy. That's my point. And God is making those of us who are saved holy. We call this the sanctification process. To be sanctified, sanctification, one great definition I've heard for it is basically living out your salvation. When you got saved, Jesus delivered you from the dominion of sin, and he delivered you from the wages of sin. Sanctification is you living like somebody or becoming somebody who is living as though you have been delivered from the dominion of sin and from the wages of your sin. Being sanctified is being made into somebody who, as the days go by progressively, we just find ourselves in many positions where, as it pertains to things that we struggled with when we were living out in the world, one day we wake up and we realize, we just ask ourselves, when was the last time I ever picked that up? When was the last time I ever looked at that? 
because God is changing us by faith in Christ and what he's done for us at Calvary the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he stays with us and he changes us into the people who God wants us to be he makes us without blame before God so what is God's motivation for all of this what is God's motivation for saving us changing us all of that stuff Paul says love Paul says all of this is in love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe on him may not perish but have everlasting life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but so that the world through him might be saved in love in love Paul uses a big word that is definitely as I've said definitely not controversial amongst Christians at all he uses that big word predestined predestination and the first thing that we think about whenever we hear the word predestination in our church culture today are usually something along the lines of the five-point doctrine of Calvinism Calvinists or at least the devout ones it's weird saying that the devout Calvinists are very devout on their interpretation of predestination a Calvinist will tell you that when the Bible talks about predestination that it pertains to God sovereignly choosing who has access to enter into heaven and who will die and go to hell and as I've mentioned before whenever you look at this word in the context of Ephesians Paul is not talking about individual people but he is talking about people at the same time if that makes any sense Paul is not talking about that Jew and that Gentile he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles how God has made a way for everybody regardless of who they are to enter into this personal relationship with him in the Greek that word for predestined does mean to choose and you don't need to look into the Greek to figure out what predestined means to predestined is to simply choose beforehand but there is an interesting definition to this here in the Greek the Greek word used for that in Ephesians 1 does mean to choose to select or specifically to choose for oneself not necessarily implying the rejection of what is not chosen but giving favor to the chosen object keeping in view a relationship to be established between the one choosing and the one chosen it involves a preference and selection from among many choices in other words simply put chosen it's a surprisingly simple word to use but where our calvinist brothers and sisters get this word wrong is that they believe that this word does imply a rejection of whatever is not chosen there at that moment all the while it does not imply rejection when we look at this word it's important to know that first of all as i've already mentioned god is obviously a god who predestines you can't deny that because the bible literally says that uses these words more often than just using them in ephesians 1 
I've talked to you about the cross of Calvary, how that was a predestined event. You can take that all the way back to before the foundation of the world, the Bible says, that the Lamb of God was slain. God is, to a degree, in the predestining business. Let's go ahead and look at Genesis chapter 3 real quick, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You all already know where I'm going here. So I'm going to go ahead and read this verse. At this point in the Bible, Adam and Eve just fell in the garden. They succumbed to the temptation of that old serpent, and they fell into sin. The fall of man was the event that welcomed sin into the world and spiritually separated man from God. All right. Here's what God says to the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve. He says this in chapter 3, verse 15. This is God speaking. He says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's interesting to know, first of all, that the first prophet and the first gospel preacher in the Bible is God himself. And it's a word to the devil himself. All the way back to the very beginning, God had this idea that one day the seed of this woman, talking about Eve's great greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth, would crush the head of the devil, who John would call that old serpent. And 2,000 years ago at Calvary's cross, Jesus did just that. He crushed the head of our adversary. He crushed the head of the enemy. Jesus did exactly what God said he would do, and God predestined that to happen. The cross of Calvary was never, ever, ever, ever in jeopardy of not happening because God had it all figured out from the very beginning. God had it all figured out. If there is anybody for you and I to trust to get something done, especially in this world today where sometimes it does feel like the people you can depend on, that group becomes smaller and smaller, God always knows exactly what he's doing. He knows. He knows. Look at Isaiah. Let's see. Tell you what, Sister Sue, could you turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10? Sister Phyllis, could you find for me Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6? And let's see. Sister Jan, could you find the book of Malachi chapter 1, verse 11? I want these three ladies to read us a few verses. Have you found Isaiah chapter 11? Verse 10. Isaiah 11, verse 10. And when you find that, could you read that out loud for us? Yes, sir. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for a son of people, so it shall the Gentiles seek, and his friends shall be born. There shall be a root, does it say, of the seed of Jesse? Yes. Alright, so that basic Jesse was David's father, so a descendant of David that the Gentiles will seek. This was hundreds of years before Jesus would come down to earth, and God is saying that the Gentiles will seek this seed. 
Sister Phyllis, have you found Isaiah 49, verse 6? Yes. Could you read it out loud for us? And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for the light of the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end salvation unto the end of the earth you know what's interesting is that a lot of the authors of the new testament or at least some of them refer to this idea that the gentiles will be in covenant relationship with god one day they refer to this as a mystery because the jews the way that they thought in their religious system back then the idea of anybody who was not a jew being in such close personal relationship with god was so alien and many of the Jewish leaders particularly got so wound up in this religious pride that they actually began to vilify the Gentiles. The Gentiles suddenly were no longer just people who were not Jews, but they were dogs. They were immediate second-class citizens. One of the prayers that the Pharisees would pray in the streets back in the day was literally, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile and thank you that I'm not a woman. They literally would say that in the streets back in the day. But God says, this will happen. Sister Jan, could you read Malachi chapter one, verse 11 out loud to us? For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Thank you. So, God has made it very clear in the Old Testament that the day is coming where the Gentiles will seek me, and the Gentiles will find me. Again, in the Old Testament times, and it's just obvious as you read the Bible, the personal relationship that God had with the Jews was just that, very, very personal. But God straight up tells Jeremiah that I will establish a new covenant. And that those are the words that God uses. New covenant. New covenant. <laughs> Well, that new covenant is no longer something that we have to wait for, but that is something that we have access to today because that new covenant has been opened up. And the Bible calls it the everlasting covenant, meaning that what everybody has access to in Christ, that is never going to be replaced with something else. What you and I have in Christ, this security that we have in Christ, these blessings that we have access to in Christ, that access will never, ever, ever, ever stop. It'll never cease. So this idea of predestination, what Paul is talking about here, let me see real quick. Real quick, just so I don't get lost. So what Paul is talking about here is this idea of the inclusion of or adoption, as it's said in the Bible, of Gentiles, of the Gentile world, into a personal covenant relationship with God. 
Let's go ahead and look at Galatians 3, verse 27 and 28. I've already quoted it this morning, but I want us to read it. I mentioned when I preached through these two verses last year through our series through Galatians how these two verses refer specifically to salvation. That's what Paul is talking about here in Galatians, at the end of Galatians 3. And he says in Galatians 3, verse 27 and 28, you got to keep in mind, this is post-death, burial, and resurrection. This is decades, I think, after, or maybe just a decade, years after Jesus died, resurrected, ascended back to the Father, and sent the Holy Spirit. So the, the sin debt has already been paid. The door for the new covenant has already been opened. The veil between God and man has already been ripped in two. And living in this new covenant world, Paul says to these Galatians here in verses 27 and 28, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one, Jew and Gentile alike. In verse number five, when Paul says, having predestinated us into the adoption of children, that refers to the simple fact that Jew and Gentile alike, when he says God has predestined us, it means that God has predestined a covenant for the Jews to be accepted, and that same covenant also accepts the Gentiles in the exact same way. God has predestined us unto the adoption. Christ has opened the door for all. Brother Jason, could you find for me Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30? Christ has opened the door for all. In other words, the new covenant does not discriminate, but everybody has this equal access to God in this glorious new covenant. Have you found it? Yes. All right. Verses 29 through 30 in chapter 8. Could you read those two verses out loud to us, please? For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, then he also glorified. Thank you. So while Paul here in Ephesians 1 is talking about predestination of the new covenant and the fact that all have access to God through that new covenant on the same basis... The idea, as many people interpret Ephesians 1, this idea that God also predestines the path of those who freely choose him, that is biblical. God knew before the foundations of the world, as Paul would say to the Romans, to those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those are two separate things, and those who he predestined, he called. God knew before the foundations of the world who would accept him and who would not accept him. And it is true, it is Bible, that for those of us that God did foreknow, that he has paved the path, that he's already made the way for everything that we'll ever need in this life as we walk with Jesus one day at a time. 
that God has already provided everything that we'll ever need, everything that we'll ever need from him to accomplish the will that he has for our lives, the callings that he has for each and every single one of us. And to live for God successfully and joyfully, God has made a way. And that way, that path, has been paved by the blood of his only begotten son. God knew and then made the way for our lives, in other words, to Christian properly. God made the way for you to do everything he needs you to do, to be the kind of person that he needs you to be. God has a mission to make us perfect, for us to be without blame. God is aiming to make us into those kinds of people. When it comes to how you look at covenants, how people maintain relationship with God throughout the years, it is true that God has never changed. God is the same yesterday. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But as is obvious just in how the Bible presents it, the, the way that people approached God throughout the years has changed. As I mentioned, this was a progressive revelation to God's people in the Old Testament especially. With Abraham, Abraham was living in what we call today the covenant of promise. God promised Abraham that the whole world would be touched through him and that God would build a nation through Abraham. The covenant of promise, there were no Ten Commandments, there were no 600 laws for God's people to keep at that time. It was just a promise that God gave to Abraham and believing in that promise, walking with God, believing that promise, the covenant of promise. And then when Moses received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, this began what we call the covenant of law, where your relationship with God was mostly maintained through your keeping of the law, and more importantly, you honoring the sacrificial system that you would have to honor whenever you <laughs> fell short of that law that God gave you. All of this in some way builds us or leads us to Christ who establishes the everlasting covenant. This covenant is not dependent on your performance or even you offering a sacrifice to God because Christ offered himself up as a sacrifice to God. And whereas as the Hebrew, as the author of Hebrews, whoever that was, says in that book, where, and I'm paraphrasing here, bear with me, whereas the blood of bulls and goats was not enough, all right, was not enough in the Old Covenant. The blood of Jesus Christ is totally significant, totally sufficient to wash away all sin, past, present, and future. All sin. This plan to include Gentiles into the New Covenant relationship was never new to God. It was figured out before the foundations of the world. And all of the benefits that a child of God has, anybody who is walking by faith in Jesus has access to those benefits. Whether they are a Jew or a Gentile, everybody who is in Christ has access to these blessings that Paul is going to talk about in this book of Ephesians. Everybody has access to it. To be predestined, to be chosen. So in this world of controversy in the church world that we have when it comes to these two words, predestined and chosen, people are far more likely to argue about these two words in this day and age that we live in instead of just trying to understand 
what the Holy Spirit through Paul is trying to say. And that does beg the question, why is it important to dwell on these ideas, especially if we're not Calvinists here at this church? Why do we need to look at these words, predestined, chosen, to look at what Paul is saying? And if nothing else, at the end of the day, we need to know what Paul is saying here because having this knowledge of predestination, this knowledge of God choosing, of God's decisions coming to pass, this simply shows us, these words show us where God fits into his redemption plan. If your redemption, if your salvation is just totally dependent on your faith and you leave the grace of God out of the equation, there is no redemption in that. Without the grace of God, our faith is absolutely meaningless. That's just the way that it is. If God does not show grace to fallen mankind, there is no salvation. If God does not open this door, there literally is not an open door. But the Holy Spirit is telling us here in this book that he has opened that door. God has chosen to open that door, not just to one group of people, but to whosoever will. The Bible says, come and drink of the water of life freely, because it is freedom that God is offering, and it's a free gift, this gift of redemption. It's a free gift. In this new covenant, God has made the way for everyone, Jew and Gentile, and it's the same way for absolutely everybody. The same way that affords the same benefits to whosoever will come to him. We see here that God is the one who sets the ball rolling. There is no new covenant if God does not offer it to those to begin with, to those who would accept it to begin with. God is the one who starts all of this, and you and I have to accept what he offers. If he doesn't offer it to us, then there's no, ch there's no chance of us receiving what he has. But God offers us salvation. So now we have an opportunity to accept Christ. We now have that opportunity. In John 3.16, we read that it's God who sent his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was God who sent his son. No human being just grabbed a fishing rod, flung it up into heaven, and fished Jesus down here to earth. That did not happen. God loved the world, so he sent his only begotten son. We read in Galatians 3.28, he makes this relationship open to all. Christ is the one who makes this relationship open to all. So simply put, as Jesus himself would say in John 15 verse 5, without him we can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. But with God, all things are possible. So why do it? I've already answered this question. But why would God do this? If there were something else outside of the obvious fact that he loves us, why would God do something like this? Well, God is always glorified, simply put. And God does this, even though it's obvious to us that God does this because he loves us. God also does this for his glory. It does not make him self-righteous. Self-righteous has this idea of 
unearned pride. God is simply righteous, and everything he does in some way, shape, or form glorifies him. And in offering this plan of redemption to the world, he is glorified in his redemption plan. God is glorified, and in his glory, he loves us. He loves us. He does everything he does for us, for his glory, and because he loves us. Whenever a man and a woman get married, most of the time soon after their marriage, they are expecting to have a child. And we've seen it with everybody that we know who has, uh, you know, who has been expecting a child. They will, I mean, just spend all of their money in preparing for this child to have the life that they think that it should have. They spend a lot of money getting clothes, little bitty shoes for the baby. They spend a lot of money getting paint in a carriage, and they spend a great deal of their time preparing for whenever this child comes into the world. Now, this child might make an absolute mess of their own life when they grow up and become a teenager and an adult, but before that child gets here, these two parents devote so much of their finances, so much of their time, so much of their energy to preparing for this baby's arrival to see to it that this baby has absolutely everything that it needs when it enters into the real world. That's a human example. We know that a human mother and father are nothing like God and nowhere near as capable as God is. But before you and I made it to this world, out of his foreknowledge, God knew those of us who would accept him. And he has paved the way for you and I to live the life that he wants us to live. God has made that way. God has devoted himself. The Bible says Christ offered himself as a sacrifice. God has devoted himself to us. It's scripture. That's not being seeker sensitive. It's scripture. Because God loves you. So why would something like this be important for a random Sunday morning? I don't know what you might be going through, whether you're going through a hard time or whether you're perfectly fine spiritually. Praise God if that's the case, honestly. But we've watched Christians so often lose sleep over what tomorrow could hold. We've watched a lot of people of God lose that contentment that they have or that they should be laying hold of in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself would say in Matthew 6, don't think about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but what did he say right before that? Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. There's no serious reason for a Christian to lose sleep over whether or not God will come through exactly when I need him to, because the cross of Christ has handled the devil problem. Jesus is coming back one day to handle the world problem. The only real problem that you and I have to worry about is the flesh problem, if we're going to be honest. But because God is faithful, we can have a constant peace, constant contentment, regardless of the situation that we're going through. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in jail. And if he can be content in jail, we can be content throughout the week. Amen. 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 God is very faithful. 
if he wasn't faithful, well, I don't even know how to continue that. God is faithful. Yes, he is. And I feel like after going through so many trials and tribulations, there comes a point in our lives where we just look back at every place that God has brought us from, every battle that God has led us through, and suddenly this greater understanding comes to us yes. that whenever Abraham offered up his son so many years ago and then saw that ram in the thicket and then offered that up to God and when he would name the place where he offered that ram Jehovah Jireh that maybe he knew exactly what he was talking about because the Lord does provide amen heavenly father we thank you Lord for this day God we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your goodness Lord I Pray that the truths in this passage of scripture be cemented in our hearts, God, and that we don't get any misconstrued ideas about what you're telling us here. I ask that you give us a greater understanding of this finished revelation that you've shared with each and every single one of us this morning. And God, we just ask that you be with us throughout this week. Give us that peace of mind, that contentment knowing that you have it all under control. And at the end of the day, Jesus Christ reigns victorious. Lord, give us opportunities, open doors throughout this week to share our faith with somebody who does not know you or to even encourage a brother and sister in Christ who's going through a difficult time, God. Because we remember what Jesus said, that with God all things are possible indeed. Lord, we give you all the praise and glory and honor. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ.